We're reading from The Soul Winner, How to Lead Sinners to the Savior, by Charles Spurgeon. Chapter 1, What is it to win a soul? We will begin our discussions regarding this subject by considering the question, what is it to win a soul? This may be answered best by first describing what it is not. Soul winning is not accomplished by stealing members from already established churches just to train them to utter our peculiar pronunciation of shibboleth from Judges 12. Instead, soul winning means bringing souls to Christ rather than making converts to our assembly. Sheep stealers beyond the walls of the church are not acting in a brotherly fashion. Concerning these, I will say nothing except they are not brethren. They must stand or fall before their own master. However, we think it reveals an absolute lack of excellence of any kind to build up our own house with the ruins of our neighbors mansions instead we prefer to quarry for ourselves i hope we all identify with such with the large-hearted spirit of dr chalmers when he was told that such and such an effort wouldn't be beneficial to the special interests of the free church of scotland although it might promote the general religion of the land in response he said what is the free church compared with the Christian good of the people of Scotland. What indeed is any church, or what are all the churches put together as mere organizations, if they stand in conflict with the moral and spiritual advantage of the nation, or if they impede the kingdom of Christ? It is because God blesses men through the churches that we desire to see them prosper, and not merely for the sake of the churches themselves. Unfortunately, there's selfishness involved in our eagerness to enlarge our own number of people. May grace deliver us from this evil spirit. The increase of God's kingdom should be desired more than the growth of a sect. It would be a great trade to make a pedo baptist brother into a Baptist because we value our Lord's ordinances. But, rather, we should labor earnestly to raise a believer in salvation by free will, into a believer in salvation by grace, because we long to see all spiritual teaching built upon the solid rock of truth and not upon the sand of imagination. At the same time, our far-reaching objective isn't the revision of opinions, but the regeneration of natures. We long to bring men to Christ and not our own peculiar views of Christianity. Our first concern must be that the sheep are gathered to the great shepherd, Afterward, we will have enough time to secure them for our various folds. To make proselytes is a suitable labor for Pharisees, but to bring men to God is the honorable aim of ministers of Christ. And others save with fear, pulling them out of the fire, hating even the garment defiled by the flesh. Jude, verse 23. Next, we don't consider soul winning to be accomplished by hurriedly penning more names to our church roll, in order to show a good increase as a growing church at the end of the year. This is easily done and worth no more than the ink and paper used to record the roll. Yet there are those who go through great pains using their skills to bring about such an outcome. However, if such tactics are to be regarded as the beginning and end of a minister's efforts, the result will be deplorable. By all means, let us bring true converts into the church for it's a part of our work to teach them to observe all things Christ has commanded. However, this is to be done to make true disciples, and not Christians in word only.
If we aren't careful to obey in this matter, we may do more harm than good at this point. The church is the body of Christ, and introducing unconverted persons into the church weakens and degrades it. For this reason, what seems to be an apparent gain numerically may be a real loss from God's point of view. I'm not among those who criticize statistics, nor do I think they produce all manner of evil. As a tool, they do much good if they are accurate and if men use them lawfully. It's a good thing for people to become aware, through statistics, of a decrease. So they see the true need and are driven to their knees before the Lord to seek prosperity. On the other hand, it's by no means an evil thing for workers to be encouraged by positive results set before them. I would be sorry if the practice of adding up, deducting, and giving the net result was to be abandoned, because it's good to be aware of our numerical condition. As long as we're discussing the matter, it's worth noting that those who object to the statistical process are often the same people whose unsatisfactory reports should somewhat humiliate them. This isn't always the case, but it is suspiciously frequent. I heard the report on a church the other day in which the minister, who was well known for dwindling his congregation to nothing, somewhat cleverly wrote, Our church is looking up. When he was questioned about his statement, he replied, Everybody knows that the church is on its back, and it can't do anything else but look up. When churches are looking up in this fashion, their pastors generally say statistics are very misleading and that you can't tabulate the work of the Spirit or calculate the prosperity of a church by figures. The fact is, if the figures are honest, you can calculate very correctly. If all circumstances are taken into consideration and there is no increase, you may gauge with considerable accuracy that there isn't much being done. If there is a clear decrease among the growing population, you may suppose that the prayers of the people and the preaching of the minister are not of the most powerful kind. But, still, all manner of hurrying just to get members into the church is most harmful, both to the church and to the supposed converts. I remember very well several years, several young men who were of good moral character and religiously promising. Instead of searching their hearts and aiming at their real conversion, the pastor never gave them any time to think about their spiritual condition. Instead, he pestered until he persuaded them, not the spirit. He pestered them to make a profession. He thought they would live under a state of servitude to holy things if they professed religion, and he felt quite safe in pressing them because they were so promising. He imagined vigilant examination would most likely discourage them and might even drive them away. So, to secure them, he made them hypocrites. The result is that, at the present time, these young men are much further away from the Church of God than they would have been if they had been upset by being kept in their proper place and warned that they were not converted to God. Yet, their names are listed on the church roll. It causes serious injury to a person received into the number of the faithful, unless there's good reason to believe he's really regenerated. I am certain of this, because I speak after careful observation. Some of the most glaring sinners I know were once members of a church, and were, as I believe, led to make a profession by undue pressure, well-meant pressure, but lacking judgment. With this said, don't think that soul winning is made certain by the multiplication of baptisms and the swelling size of your church. After all, what do these reports from the battlefield mean? Quote, 
Last night, fourteen souls were under conviction, fifteen were justified, and eight received full sanctification. I am weary of such public bragging, this counting of unhatched chickens, this exhibition of doubtful spoils. Lay aside such numberings of the people and idle pretense of certifying in half a minute that which will need the testing of a lifetime. Hope for the best, but at the height of your enthusiasm, be reasonable. Inquiry rooms are all well and good, but if they lead to idle boastings, they will grieve the Holy Spirit and work abounding evil. Soul winning is not merely stirring up excitement. Excitement will accompany every great movement, but we should ask whether the movement would be sincere and powerful. If it was as quiet and serene as a drawing room, Bible reading. You can't very well blast great rocks without the sound of explosion, nor fight a battle and keep everybody as quiet as a mouse. On a dry day, a carriage doesn't move along the road without creating some noise and dust. Friction and stimulation are the natural results of force and motion. So when the Spirit of God moves and men's minds are stirred, there will be certain visible signs of the movement. However, these signs must never be confused with the movement itself. If people imagine that stirring up dust is the object of a carriage rolling by, they can take a broom and quickly raise as much dust as 50 coaches. However, they will be committing a nuisance rather than bestowing a benefit. Excitement is as incidental as the dust, and it is not for one moment to be aimed at. When the woman swept her house, she did it to find her money, not for the sake of raising a cloud of dust. Or what woman having ten drachmas, if she loses one drachma, does not light a lamp and sweep the house and seek diligently until she finds it? Luke 15:8. Don't aim for sensationalism and effect. Flowing tears and streaming eyes, sobs and outcries, crowded after meetings and all kinds of confusion may occur and might be accepted as attributes of genuine feeling, but please don't plan their fabrication. Very often, when converts are born in excitement, they die when the excitement is over. They are like certain insects, which are the product of an exceedingly warm day and die when the sun goes down. Certain converts live like salamanders that find themselves in the fire. They expire at a reasonable temperature. I don't delight in religion which needs or creates an impulsive, hot-headed convert. Give me godliness which flourishes upon Calvary rather than upon Vesuvius. The greatest zeal for Christ is consistent with common sense and reason, while raving, ranting, and fanaticism are products of another zeal which is not according to knowledge. Romans 10.2 We prepare men for the secluded gathering of the body of Christians who have one common faith and discipline, and not for the padded room at Bedlam. No one is sorrier than I that a caution like this is needed. But as I remember the wandering thoughts and whimsical purposes of certain wild revivalists, I can say less than this, and in fact could say a great deal. Oh, I can't say less than this, and in fact I could say a great deal more. What is the real winning of a soul for God? Since this is done by a means-to-an-end approach, what are the processes by which a soul is led to God in salvation? I take it that one of the main actions consists in instructing a man that he may know the truth of God. 
2 Timothy 2.25. Instruction in the gospel is the beginning of all real work upon men's minds. Go ye therefore and teach all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all things whatsoever I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always, even unto the end of the age. Amen. Matthew 28.19-20 Teaching begins the work and crowns it too. The gospel, according to Isaiah, is incline your ear and come unto me here and your soul shall live, Isaiah. In fact, to instruct them, we are sent to evangelize or preach the gospel to every creature. And that is not done unless we teach the great truths communicated by God himself. The gospel is good news. To listen to some preachers, you would think the gospel was a pinch of sacred snuff to make them wake up, or a bottle of fiery spirits to excite their brains. It's nothing of the kind. It is news. There is information in it. It includes instruction concerning matters men need to know, and statements calculated to bless those who hear it. It's not a magical incantation or a charm. It isn't a force that consists of a collection of sounds. It's a revelation of facts and truths which require knowledge and belief. The gospel is a reasonable system, and it appeals to men's understanding. It's a matter for thought and consideration. And it appeals to the conscience and the power of reflection. Consequently, if we don't teach men something, we can shout, believe, 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 but what are they to believe? Each exhortation requires a corresponding instruction, or it will mean nothing. Escape! But from what? This requires knowledge of the doctrine of the punishment of sin for its answer. Fly! But where? You must preach Christ, his wounds, and the clear doctrine of atonement by sacrifice. Repent! Of what? Here you must answer such questions as, What is sin? What is the evil of sin? What are the consequences of sin? Be converted! But what is it to be converted? By what power can we be converted? Converted from what? And to what? The field of instruction is wide if men are to be made to know the truth which saves, quote, that the soul be without wisdom. The field of instruction is wide if men are to be made to know the truth which saves. That the soul be without wisdom is not good, Proverb 19.2. And as the Lord's instruments, it is our responsibility to bring men the truth, so they may know it, believe it, and feel its power. We are not to try and save men by our own efforts. In the power of the Holy Spirit, we are to seek to turn them from darkness to light. And don't believe that when you go into revival meetings or special evangelistic services, that it's permissible to leave the doctrines out of the gospel. If anything, for such occasions, you ought to proclaim the doctrines of grace more rather than less. Teach gospel doctrines clearly, affectionately, simply, and plainly. Especially, teach those truths which have a current and practical bearing upon man's condition and God's grace. Some fanatics seem to have accepted the notion that as soon as a minister finds himself addressing the unconverted, he should deliberately avoid his usual doctrinal subjects, because it is supposed that no conversions will occur if he preaches the whole counsel of God. 
This practice suggests that we are supposed to conceal truth and utter a half-falsehood in order to save souls, yet we are to speak the truth to God's people because they will not hear anything else. This is to suggest we are to coax sinners into faith by exaggerating one part of the truth and hiding the rest until a more convenient time. This is a strange theory, and yet many endorse it. According to them, we may preach the redemption of a chosen number to God's people, but universal redemption must be our doctrine when we speak with the outside world. This practice sends a mixed message that we are to tell believers salvation is all by grace. But sinners are to be spoken to as if they are to save themselves. We are to inform Christians that God, the Holy Spirit alone, can convert. But when we talk with the unsaved, the Holy Spirit is scarcely mentioned. We have not learned Christ in this way. While others have done this, let them be our warning beacons and not our examples. He who sent us to win souls neither permits us to invent falsehoods nor suppress the truth. His work can be done without such suspicious methods. Perhaps some of you will reply, but still God has blessed half-statements and wild assertions. Don't be so sure. I maintain that God does not bless falsehood. He may bless the truth, which is mixed up with error, but much more blessing would come if the preaching fell more in accordance with his own word. I can't admit that the Lord blesses evangelistic Jesuitism, cunning, deceit, hypocrisy, prevarication, deceptive practices to effect a purpose, and for me to describe it as the suppression of truth is not too harsh. The withholding of the doctrine of the total depravity of man has brought about serious harm to many who have listened to such preaching. These people don't experience a true healing because they don't recognize the disease under which they suffer. They are never truly clothed in Christ's righteousness because nothing is done towards stripping them. Many ministries don't probe the heart enough or arouse the conscience by revealing man's alienation from God and proclaiming the selfishness and wickedness of such a state. Men need to be told that only divine grace can bring them out of their enmity to God. And if they choose not to accept His grace, the consequence is that they must eternally perish. Verily, verily, I say unto you, He that enters not by the door into the sheepfold, but climbs up some other way, the same as a thief and a robber. John 10.1 They must be reminded of the sovereignty of God. He isn't obliged to bring them out of this state. In fact, he would be right and just if he left them in such a condition. For they have no goodness or excellence which entitles them the honor to plead before him and no claims upon him. Quote, they are all gone aside, they are all together become filthy, there is no one that does good, no, not one. Psalm 14.3 If they are to be saved, it must be by grace and by grace alone. The preacher's work is to bring sinners low to see their helplessness, so they may be compelled to look up to him who alone can help them. To try to win a soul for Christ by keeping that soul in ignorance of any truth is contrary to the mind of the Spirit. 
to endeavor to save men by absurd or nonsensical talk, ideas, excitement, or rhetorical display is as foolish as to hope to hold an angel with adhesive or to lure a star with music. The best attraction is the gospel in its purity. The weapon with which the Lord conquers men is the truth as it is in Jesus. The gospel has the same magnitude in every emergency, an arrow which can pierce the hardest heart, and a balm which will heal the deadliest wound. Preach it, and preach nothing else. Rely implicitly upon the old, old gospel. You need no other nets when you fish for men. Those your master has given you are strong enough for the great fish, and have mesh fine enough to hold the little ones. Spread these nets, and no others, and you'll have no need to fear the fulfillment of his word. I will make you fishers of men. Matthew 4:19. Secondly, to win a soul, it is necessary not only to instruct our hearer and make him know the truth, but to impress him, to say, I'm sorry, but to impress him so that he may feel it. A purely educational ministry, which always appeals to the understanding and leaves the emotions untouched, would certainly be a crippled ministry. The legs of the lame are not equal, says Solomon, and the unequal legs of some ministries cripple them. Proverbs 26, 7. We have seen such a ministry limp along with a long doctrinal leg, but a very short emotional leg. It's a horrible thing for a man to be so doctrinal and cerebral that he can speak coolly of the doom of the wicked. He experiences no anguish of heart to think of the ruin of millions of people. That's horrible. I hate to hear the terrors of the Lord proclaimed by men whose hard facades, harsh tones, and unfeeling spirit betray a sort of doctrinal dryness. All the milk of human kindness is dehydrated out of them, having no feeling himself. Such a preacher stirs no one. People sit and listen while he keeps to dry, lifeless statements until they come to value him for being sound, founded in truth. And they come to be sound in the same way and just as dry. I must add, sound asleep as well. What life they do have is spent sniffing out heresy and making sincere men offenders for a word. May we never be baptized into this spirit. Whatever I believe or do not believe, the command to love my neighbor as myself still maintains its claim upon me. And the second is like it, thou, thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. There is no other commandment greater than these. Mark 12:31. God forbid that any views or opinions should so shrink my soul and harden my heart as to make me forget this law of love. The love of God is first, but this by no means lessens the obligation of love to man. In fact, the first command includes the second. We are to seek our neighbor's conversion because we love him. We are to speak to him in loving terms and share God's loving gospel because our heart desires his eternal good. A sinner has a heart as well as a head. 
emotions and thoughts, and we must appeal to both. A sinner will never be converted until his emotions are stirred, unless he feels sorrow for sin, and unless he has some measure of joy in the reception of the word, you can't have much hope for him. The truth must soak into the soul and dye it with its own color. The word must be like a strong wind sweeping through the whole heart and swaying the whole man, even as a field of ripening corn waves in the summer breeze. Religion without emotion is religion without life. But still, we must think about how these emotions are caused. Don't toy with a mind by exciting feelings which are not spiritual. Some preachers are very fond of introducing topics like funerals and dying children in their sermons. They cause people to weep through sheer natural affection. This may lead up to something better, but in itself, what is its value? What's the good of stirring up a mother's grief or a widow's sorrow? I don't believe our merciful Lord sent us to make men weep over their departed relatives by digging their graves again and recounting past scenes of bereavement and woe. Why should he? Granted, you may utilize the deathbed experience of a departing Christian or of a dying sinner for proof of the state of reconciliation to God through faith in the one case and the terror of conscience in the other. However, it's through the facts, and not the illustration, that good must arise. In and of itself, natural grief is of no use. It's a distraction from more important thoughts and a price too great to exact from tender hearts. Unless we can repay them by grafting lasting spiritual impressions upon the stock of natural affection. What a splendid sermon, full of qualities that evoke sadness, said one who heard it. But what's the practical outcome of this sadness? A young preacher once remarked, weren't you greatly struck to see such a large congregation weeping? Yes, said his sensible friend, but upon reflection I was more struck that they would probably have wept more at a play. This is exactly what I'm talking about. The weeping in both cases may be equally insignificant and useless. I saw a girl on board a steamboat reading a book. She cried as if her heart would break, but when I glanced at the title, I saw it was only one of those silly cheap novels which load our railway bookstalls. Her tears were an absolute waste of moisture, and so are those produced by mere pulpit, tale-telling, and deathbed images. If our hearers weep over their sins because Jesus let their tears flow in rivers, that is one thing. But if their sorrow is merely a natural response and not all spiritual, what good is it to get them worked up and weeping? While there might be some worth in making people joyful, when it comes to sorrow there is enough in the world. So what is the use of creating needless misery? What right do you have to go through the world pricking everybody with your sharp surgical instrument just to show your skill in surgery. A true physician only makes incisions to bring about cures, and a wise minister only excites painful emotions in men's minds with the distinct object of blessing their souls. You and I must continue to drive at men's hearts till they are broken. Then we must keep on preaching Christ crucified till their hearts are committed. 
When this is accomplished, we must continue to proclaim the gospel till their whole nature is brought into subjection to the gospel of Christ. Even in these preliminary aspects of soul winning, you will need the Holy Spirit to work with you and through you. This need will be even more evident when we advance a step further and speak of the new birth itself in which the Holy Spirit works in a style and manner most divine. I have already asserted that both instruction and feelings are necessary to soul winning, but they are only a means to the desired end. A far greater work must be accomplished before a man is saved. A wonder of divine grace must be worked upon the soul, a work far beyond anything which can be accomplished by the power of man. While we would be pleased to win people for Jesus, the truth is, except a person be born again from above, he cannot see the kingdom of God. John 3, 3. The Holy Spirit must regenerate the areas of the mind which pursue accomplishment, attainment, and ultimate purpose. Without the Holy Spirit, affections regarding such things can never bear eternal happiness. People must be made alive into a new life and become new creatures in Christ Jesus. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, they are a new creation. All things are passed away. Behold, all things are made new. 2 Corinthians 5.17 The same energy which accomplishes resurrection and creation must put forth all its power to bring forth this new life, for nothing short of this can meet the need. Jesus answered and said unto him, Verily, verily, I say unto you, except a person be born again from above, he cannot see the kingdom of God. John 3, 3. They must be born again from above. At first, this might seem to put human activity completely out of the picture, but turning to the scripture, we find nothing to justify such an implication. In fact, the tendency found in Scripture is quite the opposite. In Scripture, we find the Lord to be all in all, but we also find no hint that we should disregard His use of willing servants. The Lord's supreme majesty and power are seen all the more gloriously because He works in different ways and through different means. He is so great that He is not afraid to put honor upon the people He employs for a special purpose by speaking of them in noble terms and crediting them with great influence. It's sad to say, but it's possible to say too little of the Holy Spirit. In fact, I fear this is one of the crying sins of the age. Still, the infallible word, which always rightly balances truth, magnifies the Holy Spirit and doesn't speak lightly of the men by whom he works. God does not think his own honor to be so questionable that it can only be maintained by criticizing the human agent. Two passages in the epistles, when put together, have often amazed me. In these passages, Paul compares himself to both a father and a mother in the matter of the new birth. Regarding one convert, he says, whom I have begotten in my bonds, Philemon 1.10. And of a whole church, he says, My little children, of whom I travail in birth again, until Christ be formed in you, Galatians 4.19. This goes much further than modern orthodoxy permits the most constructive minister to venture. And yet, it is language sanctioned and dictated by the Spirit of God himself, Therefore, it is not to be criticized. 
God infuses such mysterious power into the means which he ordains that we are called laborers together with God, 1 Corinthians 3.9. This instantly becomes the source of our responsibility and the base of our hope. Regeneration or the new birth works a change in the whole nature of man and, so far as we can judge, its essence lies in the implantation and creation of a new being within the man. The Holy Spirit creates in us a new heavenly and immortal nature, which is known in Scripture as the Spirit, as a means of distinction from the soul. Our theory of regeneration is that man, in his fallen nature, consists only of body and soul, and when he is regenerated, a new and higher nature is created in him, the Spirit, which is a spark from the everlasting fire of God's life and love. This falls into the heart, abides there, and makes its receiver a partaker of the divine nature. From that point on, the man consists of three parts, body, soul, and spirit. The spirit is the controlling power of the three. For an example of this, look at that memorable chapter dealing with the resurrection. In 1 Corinthians 15, this distinction is brought out in the original manuscripts and can still be seen in our Bible versions today if you take the time to study the original. The First Corinthians 15 passage rendered, it is sown a natural body, might better read, it is sown a soulish body, it is raised a spiritual body. There is a soulish body, there is a spiritual body. And so it is written, the first man, Adam, was made a living soul. The last Adam was made a life-giving spirit. How be it, that was not first which is spiritual, but that which is soulish, and afterward that which is spiritual. 1 Corinthians 15, 44-46, the author's paraphrase. We start off in the natural or soulish stage of being like the first Adam. Then, in regeneration, we enter into a new condition. We become possessors of the life-giving spirit. Without the Spirit, no man can see or enter the kingdom of heaven, John 3, 5. Therefore, as soul winners, it must be our intense desire that the Holy Spirit visit our hearers and create in them anew, that he comes down upon these dry bones and breathes eternal life into those dead in sin. Until this happens, they can never receive the truth. But the natural man does not perceive the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness unto him. Neither can he understand them, because they are spiritually discerned. 1 Corinthians 2.14 Because the prudence of the flesh is enmity against God, for it does not subject itself to the law of God, neither indeed can it. Romans 8.7 A new and heavenly mind must be created by the omnipotence must be created by omnipotence. Otherwise, the man must abide in death. You see, we have a mighty work before us, a work which we are totally incapable of in and of ourselves. No minister of Christ can save a soul, nor can all of us put together 
accomplish this feat. In fact, it is impossible for all the saints on earth or in heaven to work regeneration in a single person. The whole business of saving souls on our part is the height of absurdity unless we consider ourselves used by the Holy Spirit and filled with His power. On the other hand, the marvels of regeneration which accompany our ministry are the best seals and witnesses of our divine summons. If I am not an apostle unto others, yet doubtless I am to you, for you are the seal of my apostleship in the Lord. 1 Corinthians 9.2 While the apostles could appeal to the miracles of Christ and to those which they performed in his name, we draw attention to the miracles of the Holy Spirit, which are as divine and real as those of our Lord himself. These miracles are the creation of a new life within the human heart, at the center of their passions, bringing about a total change of the whole being of any upon whom the Spirit descends. <laughs>